Okay, let's talk about the power of the church. Now, this is uh, what kind of authority does the church have and how should church discipline function? Um, we started this last time. Uh, we'll continue on it today, maybe finish, but if I don't, it will be, we'll finish it up with church discipline next week, and then we'll go on to church government, and that'll take us two or three weeks. Advance warning, uh, November 16th, I will be here, but we're going to have a, a guest teacher, Dr. Peter Williams, warden of Tyndall House Library in Cambridge, England. Peter is, I think, in his mid to late 30s, and he's had a phenomenal rise in the British academic world. He's one of the very few people who has taught at the university level in England in both Old Testament and New Testament. He taught Hebrew and Old Testament and Syriac at uh, Cambridge, University of Cambridge. And then he went to Edinburgh and taught New Testament. And F.F. Um, F. Bruce had that ability. He could teach both Old Testament and New Testament. But to have that competence at a young age, now he's been appointed warden of Tyndall House, which is the premier research library for evangelical scholars in the whole world. And I was delighted when I heard that appointment because Peter also has been an elder at the church that Margaret and I uh, belonged to when we lived in Cambridge, Eden Baptist Church. You have to be a strong inerrantist, uh, believe in the complete truthfulness of the Bible to be, at, uh, to be at Eden Baptist Church. I mean, it's just amazing that someone that conservative and that brilliant could be appointed to head up this uh, strategic library, research library, where there are at any time 50 probably scholars working there, PhD students and people on sabbatical. So he'll be with us November 16th. All right, here we go. The power of the church is the God-given power uh, to or authority to carry on spiritual warfare, proclaim the gospel, and exercise church discipline. Two weeks ago, we talked about spiritual warfare, where Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So our weapons to carry out the task of the church is not Weapons like machines, guns, tanks, fighter planes, and missiles, but prayer and worship and scripture and faith and righteous and holy lives and authority over demonic forces. The power to break through sin and hardened opposition and to awaken faith in the hearts of unbelievers. We talked about this last week. There's a positive spiritual power whereby as we proclaim the gospel and share the word of God with people, the Lord opens people's hearts to, to believe. And we are born again through the power of the word of God. Can this power be used within the church to bring spiritual discipline? Well, it was in the book of Acts. Uh, discipline also for those who were uh, up, uh, opposing the work of the church. And we talked about that last week too. And does the church today have the same power in spiritual warfare? And I ended up on the side of saying, yes, in general, I think it does. And uh, talked about just a, a few cases where I've seen people that have just opposed, opposed, opposed the work of the church uh, in an individual church. And then all of a sudden, it seems that God brings some kind of discipline or judgment against them. That was where we ended last week. The second thing we have to talk about now in your outline here is the question of the keys of the kingdom, and it relates to the power of the church. This is a, a passage that has been classically uh, disputed in, in terms of its meaning between Protestants and Catholics. So I'll read the passage, Matthew 16, 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is Peter's great confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Messiah, and then the Son of the living God. You're not only the Messiah, you're also the one who is the Son of God sent uh, to live among us. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
what is the key what does this mean the keys of the kingdom i'm going to just take a little detour for a minute and say you are peter and on this rock i will build my church catholics say that is the verse that gives the authority to peter to be the first bishop of rome or uh, the or in other words the pope um uh, and protestants including me have differed with that and and said it doesn't say you are peter and on you i will build my church but it says, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's a little play in words because the name Peter, Petros, and the word rock, Petra, are related words in Greek. And so Roman Catholics have said, well, it's the same thing. On this rock, that is you, I will build my church. Well, it doesn't say you. And so I think that it's right to say that Jesus is referring to Peter's role in confessing Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of the living God. The church is not built on Peter. He's a human being. The church is built on confession of Christ as the Son of God and belief in him as Savior. That's what, it's this rock, the rock of Peter's confession and the rock of Peter's faith is the basis on which the whole church is built. You don't get into the church unless you believe, truly, the spiritual church, unless you believe in Jesus as the Savior and the Son of God and the Messiah. And so, um, yes, there's an interchange. You are Peter, that is, you are rock-like in your faith, and on this kind of rock-like faith, I'm going to build my church. Yeah, that's fine. But this is the same Peter to whom Jesus said just a few verses later, when Peter said, don't, don't, we don't want you to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, and, Peter, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> You're not on the side of, 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 of God, but of man. And so, uh, so uh, I do not think this is a promise to build his church on any one people on any one person it doesn't say on you it says on this rock that is the rock the solid basis of this trust in christ as messiah which is the whole new testament it's the, the goal of it is to get people to come to christ in faith but now what's the keys of the kingdom i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven <clears throat> what is the meaning of that and does this apply only to peter or is it Peter as representative of many others who would follow after him? I think representative of all who would follow after him. But let's, let's look at this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, what is the meaning of a key? Well, a key always implies authority to open a door and give entrance to a place or a realm. <clears throat> so, Luke 11:52, Woe to you lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge. <clears throat> taking away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. That is knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of his, of his ways and his kingdom. The key was to enable people to come in and, and understand that knowledge, and they took it away so that people couldn't really truly know God because of all the layers of tradition that they had built over knowledge of God in Scripture. Or uh, Revelation 1.18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades to open to let people in or out. Jesus has that authority. Conclusion, I think then, as you would think makes... I don't have my keys. Anyway, as you would think keys do, the, the keys of the kingdom represents, represents at least this, at least the authority to preach the gospel of Christ and thus to open the door of the kingdom of heaven and allow people to enter. <clears throat> so... Uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, it isn't complicated. It's like the key to the church lets you into the church. 
the key to your house lets you into your house. The keys to the kingdom of heaven let you into the kingdom of heaven. That, that doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's what it would mean. And so at least it's the authority to preach the gospel. I think what Jesus is saying is you don't have to depend on me being the only one to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. I'm going to pass that on to some others. And Peter, you're the first because you've confessed me as Messiah. And so after you confess me as Messiah, I'm going to give you the keys to let people into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> it's at least that. But does it say key? No. No, it doesn't say key. It says keys, plural. So there's probably, I think there's probably more involved here. Keys suggests more than one door, doesn't it? Again, I'm saying this is not rocket science. It's just a key opens the door and lets people in. The key to the kingdom lets you in. But the keys of the kingdom suggest more than one door. So I think Jesus is saying more in this image. I think he's suggesting authority within the kingdom. And this suggests to me that there is authority in church discipline. And in fact, that is confirmed when just two chapters later in Matthew 18, we've got kind of a parallel wording. See, Matthew 16, 15, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing. This is Matthew chapter 16, right? Now we're going to go over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, if you refuse to listen to them, this is if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others. And then if he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there are two arguments in favor of the idea that this means not only preach the gospel so people can get into the kingdom, but also authority within the kingdom. So I don't know uh, uh, who has all the keys to um, the rooms in uh, Scottsdale Bible Church, but if a person does, there's authority to open and let a class in or, or, to, or to close another door and, and close it up at night. And keys have authority within the building once you're in. And so I think what Jesus is doing is saying that keys also have to do with placing under and releasing from church discipline. And two chapters later in Matthew 18, 17 to 18, this binding and loosing language is repeated. And so that, I think, gives confirmation to it. it makes sense with the idea of plural keys. It makes sense with the parallel two chapters later. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that to Peter as confessing Jesus as Messiah. So key, you can let people in. Key, there's authority within the kingdom. Does that authority apply only to Peter then? Well, let me ask you, do you have authority to preach the gospel to other people and let them into the kingdom? Sure you do. Sure you do. Annie is saying yes. <laughs> yes, of course you do. So I think it's, it's, as everybody follows Peter's example, then you become a believer, and to that extent, you have the authority to at least let people in, and then we're going to get to this idea of there's some structure within the church whereby the authority of discipline can be carried out with the keys as well. In both passages, the term whatever, not whoever, 
is neuter in Greek, perhaps indicating Jesus is not speaking exactly of persons, whoever you bind shall be bound on earth, but rather more generally of situations and relationships that come up within the church. Whatever you bind, whatever you lose, that would include both persons and situations. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And now I'm going to go, just, just, just take time out here just for a minute. Excuse me, but I just have a little tiny trivial, not trivial, but more detailed comment about the Greek text. It's an unusual Greek construction. It's a paraphrastic future perfect tense. I know that's just why you came this morning to find that out. <laughs> Uh, it talks about an action that will be completed before some future point, and so it's possible to translate these words as follows. And there's a little discussion among people, experts in Greek grammar about this. You just want to say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or you could kind of bring out a little more fully the nuance of it. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Uh, those of you who've had Greek, there's the future of Amy, Estai, and then the perfect participle, didemona, Shall, shall be having been bound. What does that mean? That means if this was a church and there was somebody who was um, repeatedly rejecting the discipline of the church, so, so the church had to say, as our church back, I remember a specific case when I was an elder board back in a church in Illinois, and with much sadness, we brought a recommendation to the whole congregation at the church meeting, that this certain man be removed from the membership of the church. And, and in the letter that we read, presented to the church, and the church had to vote to approve this letter, saying, with great sorrow, we're telling you we no longer consider you a member of the church, but we're also reaffirming our love for you and our hope that you will make things right and come back. And it had to do with just his, uh, his mistreatment of his wife and uh, his refusal to repent and his just insistence that he was getting out of the marriage so there was no real cause for it. Now what this says is, once the church voted that, and the church did, though they amended it to add an extra sentence reaffirming their love for him, and then passed it, what this means is when the church did that, then this man... I'll call him Sam, that wasn't his name. This man, Sam, was placed under church discipline to the point of being excluded from the membership of the church. And Jesus is saying that God also confirmed that or reinforced it in a spiritual way. In fact, knowing in advance that it was going to happen, once we took the action it would be seen that God had already begun that action. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. I don't know the story of what has happened subsequently because we moved here to Arizona. I can tell you other stories of other instances in churches where sometimes those have turned out with repentance and restoration and reconciliation. Other stories where that has happened. This one, it didn't immediately result in that. But what this is saying, I think, is that Sam shouldn't think that he could run any place on the face of the earth and get away from God's discipline. Just like Jonah, trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't work. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been or shall be bound in heaven. That means that once we voted as a church 
that God took that very seriously and would continue himself to enforce the discipline. So Sam can try to go to another church, but God's blessing is going to be removed from his life until he submits to the discipline of the church and makes right what he had been doing wrong. Is that making sense? And the, and the, and the, well, uh, it just, I, I, or stop on that for a minute. That's why church discipline is such a serious thing, because God is involved in reinforcing and confirming it. And people say, oh, what does it matter if we carry out church discipline? Somebody's just going to go to the church down the street and, and act like nothing happened. Oh, no. God's not going to let that happen. So here's the, here's the point. I hope this never happens to any of you here. But it does from time to time. People get hardened in a rebellious spirit against God's teachings in the Word, and they, and they begin to stray. And if that ever happens to you, the only way out is to submit to church. The only legitimate way out is to submit to church discipline and never to try to run from it. All right? I think I mentioned before, but it's so public that I'll, I'll mention it again. Jimmy Swaggart had this nationwide TV ministry, thousands of people in his church, was found out that he was engaging in sexual immorality. His church disciplined him, and his denomination, the Assemblies of God, put him under discipline and said, we don't want you to preach or teach publicly for a year. And he said, I don't need you. Goodbye. So he left the denomination. And he said, <clears throat> I've got such anointing, such power, such blessing on my ministry. I'm just going to carry on. And for a few weeks or maybe a month or two, it looked like maybe he's going to get away with it. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't in Oklahoma, he was in Los Angeles, and a random traffic stop, a policeman pulled him over, and it got in the newspaper. There he was, driving in a rented car in Los Angeles with a known prostitute in the car. Well, what happened? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That is, he thought he could get out of the discipline of the Assemblies of God denomination, but he didn't run from it. And God withdrew his hand of protection, and I think, you see... There's sin in all our hearts, and if God doesn't keep the restraining power of the Holy Spirit in us, we'll all of a sudden make bad decisions, and we'll have bad judgments, and we'll make foolish choices, and we'll stray away into sin more and more, and we'll, we'll be deceived. And that was what happened with Jimmy Swaggart. He tried to flee from church discipline, but he couldn't flee from God. So it's serious. Now just P.S. Church discipline is not unlimited. It cannot be used in cases where there's no true sin or to promote wrongful goals of the church. Just somebody trying to get back at somebody else who has a different opinion or something. I don't think God's going to enforce that or bless it. It is effective, effective only against sin as defined by God in the Bible, and the ultimate authority, of course, to forgive sins belongs to God alone. Um, and so... Uh, Isaiah 43, 25, I, says the Lord, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Mark 2, 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's a question of Jesus' opponents, but of course, they had truth in what they said there. And uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The verse that actually Daryl quoted in a very good sermon just last hour, um, 1 John 1, 9, about forgiveness. It's ultimately from God, 
but, but through human agents in the authority of the church that is mediated. Okay, yeah, I'll stop there and see, because there's another topic coming up on the next slide. Do you want to just talk about that for a few minutes? Yeah, Ed. Oh. Wayne, uh, with respect to this uh, authority that was given, uh, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. I was told that you is plural. No, it's singular. It is singular? Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Would be nice, but <laughs> have to be true to the text of what it is. Well, I mean, I just looked recently. I'll look again, Lord. Just be, be sure, be sure, be sure. But I just, I just had looked at it. Okay. Anything else? What else? Yeah, Chantel. I think it's wonderful that I seem to understand. It's singular. I think it's wonderful, and that I seem to to think and know from what you just said, that it's not so much that the Lord punishes us, but it is that he removes his blessings from yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Chantel, I, I like that wording, he removes his blessings. And I, too, am very reluctant to use the word punish with regard to God's interaction with Christians. But he does discipline. And sometimes Hebrews 12 says discipline is painful. So um, that's, the, yeah, good. Okay, what else? Oh, right in the front row. I don't know your name here. I should know your name. Marilyn. Marilyn. Um, I just had someone um, to put it up right, Friday, clo- right close. I had someone Friday in my office ask me what gives Christians the right to judge people. It makes them judgmental. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I gave them her an answer that I thought was correct, but I'd like to hear what you think mm-hmm. that I should have said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could you repeat that, please? Yeah, what gives Christians the right to judge people, to make them judgmental? It's just one of those words that means a lot of different things in different contexts. Um, only God can let people into heaven or condemn them to hell. We don't do that. He's the final judge. And yet, um, even that person in your office, uh, if she was it a woman, if she is in a job, she's being evaluated by her supervisor. Everybody is. And if you're the president of the company, you're being evaluated by your customers. So <laughs> everybody is judged in some sense. It's just part of life. People evaluate. And um, there's another verse where Jesus says, judge with right judgment. So when he says, don't judge that you may not be judged, I think it means don't have a, a kind of a judgmental, always critical, unkind, harsh attitude. Okay? Um, intolerant, you know, that kind of thing. It's talking about attitude of heart. But as far as discipline of the church, we'll get on to that because there are some specific sins for which the church carried out discipline, and we don't want to negate those other commands in the Bible, you know, where it tells us to carry out church discipline by taking this sentence of Jesus and making it contradict the other verses. Can't do that. Wayne, okay. Charlie has a point over Charlie. here. Charlie. Hey, Wayne, um, just in terms of church discipline and church membership, 
I, I believe, you probably know this better than I do, but the majority of people who come to Scott's Bible Church on a Sunday morning are not members of the church. Yeah. I know, in fact, me and my wife are not. Uh-oh. Boo. You're take the microphone uh, away from him. But uh, part, part of that is just because of the process to become members, which is a totally different topic. But yeah. what... In light, I know John Piper talks a lot about the importance of church membership. In yep. light of church discipline, what should be done about that? Because otherwise, okay, you deny them membership. Well, they're not members, and yep. is someone going to stand outside the door and they're not going to show up on, yep. on, you know, all that, all that stuff. Church size. I mean, a lot yep. of things come into play. Yep. Done. Uh, what do you do about church discipline when a lot of the attenders are not members of the church? I don't know. Wayne, can I step in on that one? Uh, yes, Bob's on the elder board. Yeah, uh, we have had a, a man who has frequented our campus for quite some time, uh, a variety of classes, including this class, who is a uh, probably the most benevolent term I can think of, a professional moocher. And uh, he has gotten money from lots and lots of people. And so we have gone to him and told him he's not welcome on the campus at Scottsdale Bible Church anymore. Good. And all of the ushers have been alerted to it. And in fact, he did show up last week and he was escorted off the campus. Good. Thank you, Bob. Good. Perfect example of where someone is not a member but is, is upsetting the fellowship of the church. Then the church uses the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven to say, Sorry, please don't attend anymore. Well, in this case, it wasn't tied to membership because he was intruding on the life of the church. Um, I'd like to add a postscript to the person who escorted him off the campus was not I, it was bigger. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Bob, for that little note. Good. there are other, I mean, when I was on the elder board, we did uh, vote to exclude someone from the fellowship of the church for dishonest business practices that had been repeated over a number of cases and was well documented and had happened with respect to various individuals. And I thought that was good that we did that. It was done only over a period of time and reluctantly because it was, the church doesn't want to do this very, very much, but, but it was done, and I think it needed to be done. So it does become difficult when you have several thousand people on a weekend, and so it's probably best handled within a a business meeting of the church or a called meeting or something like that. I'm not sure exactly where... uh, There are different mechanisms for different churches to do that, but but something needs to be done. Okay, anything else? Yeah, E.G. Along the lines of this issue of judgmental, I think it might help if you separate it into two actions. One would be an opinion, which we, I believe, all have the authority to have. And then the other issue is discipline, which we don't necessarily all have. Okay. So you can have the opinion, but you don't have to try and put in place discipline. Okay, that's really helpful. Unless you have the authority. Yeah, okay. So also within a family... A husband and wife or mom and dad can discipline their own children, but you don't want neighbors coming in and trying to intrude in the discipline. That's not, they don't have authority there. And so, um, in ordinary cases. And so, um, with the church, there should be a respect for the authority structure within the church. And, oh, here's an example. If older brother tries to discipline younger brother, we get a lot of problems. That's parents' job. Okay, good. 
Okay, anything else? Just kind of, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes, more detail on church discipline, but I just wanted to, you want to do one more here, Marilyn? Well, I just wanted to say I told her that I was not being judgmental. God is. Oh, okay. And that the only thing I judge is by what the Bible says. Okay. And that doesn't mean that I don't love someone. It Good. just means that their behavior is against the scripture of the Bible, okay. and that's a judgment of God, yep. not me. Okay. And Good. Also, you, Scottsdale Bible has dismissed pastors that do not follow church okay, doctrine. Okay, okay, a lot of stuff here. But you had a good answer, so thanks. All right, now we're going to go on to another topic, and I'm just going to take a few minutes on this, but it has to do with the power of the church, so it comes up here, and uh, oh, it could be weeks and weeks and weeks on this topic, but I'm just going to do a quick overview and a quick highlight. What about the power of the church related to the power of the state? And you see, the reason that becomes a difficulty is in the Old Testament, under the nation of Israel, under the covenant with Moses from Exodus 20 onward, the people of God, the people of Israel, and the people of the citizens of Israel were the same group. And so they were living under King David or under King Solomon or, or under King Saul. They were, and so they had the same set of laws governing believers and the, and the government, the civil government. And so if people try to take that Old Testament system and move it over to the New Testament, they make all sorts of mistakes. Because in the New Testament, there are some differences. And so here's the question now. Should the church ever use physical force to advance the kingdom? That is, to take up the sword. That's kind of the, the uh, this will be my sword. To, uh, that's the uh, kind of expression that's used to try to use physical force to compel people to believe. And in fact, there are some people in the history of the church who have done this. The early history of the church, there was a lot of persecution. Christians were put in prison, they were put to death. And then in 312, Constantine was in battle for the control of the Roman Empire. And before a battle, he claims that he saw this vision of a cross and the words in Latin, in this sign conquer. And so he took the cross and went forth and won his battle and became emperor. In 312, then, he issued the Edict of Milan, which gave full legal toleration of Christianity and stopped the persecution. Well, okay, good. It's nice. But the problem is he began to think, I have all this power. I guess everybody in the empire is going to become a Christian. You don't like it? Tough. <laughs> all of a sudden, you all have to be baptized and... and uh, and uh, you have to declare that you're Christian and support the church. And so entire nations became Christian, and that went on for well over a thousand years. And even after the Reformation, beginning with Martin Luther in 1517, there were many state churches where the church and the state were very closely locked together. And there were many cases where uh, the Pope was deciding who was going to be emperor even. They had so much power. Is that right? Well... First, I think that there is some positive affirmation of the power of the sword in the Bible, but I don't think it's given to civil government. I don't think it's given to uh, the government of a nation. I mean, to government of a church. I'm sorry, I'm back. I lost my train of thought. There is some use of the power of the sword, but it's not given to the church. Not given to the church. It's given to civil government. To, write, to the right to bear the sword. And I think Christians can rightly serve as uh, soldiers and policemen. And so, um, Romans 13, 1-7, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is civil government. There's no authority except from God. 
those, those that exist have been instituted by God. And the, and the civil ruler is God's servant for your good, Romans 13.4. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, that means that I think governments have the right to use force to stop murderers from murdering or arrest drunk drivers so they won't drive down the 101 and, 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 and uh, plow into your car. And uh, that's, the, that's the civil government, all right? And to use force to protect a nation from invaders from outside, the civil government, but not the church. Jesus refused to use physical force to compel people to believe in him. And so this is very important when Jesus makes a distinction between what I would call civil government and the church. People were testing Jesus and said, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? And he said, show me a coin. And they gave him a denarius. He said, whose image is this? Well, that's Caesar's. Well, then Jesus said, render to Caesar <clears throat> the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In terms of the history of thought, in terms of the history of how people think about civil government, this is a momentous statement because while well, Jesus isn't specifying all the details, he's saying there are two realms. There's the realm of things that are Caesar's, and there's the realm of things that are God's. And by implication with that question, the realm of collecting taxes and supporting the civil government, that's the things that are Caesar's. But there are other things that are outside of Caesar's control, and that's the things that are God's. <clears throat> so there's a distinction between what we would call today church and state. A distinction. And that means that it's different from the people of Israel in the Old Testament, where it's all one. Church and state had one government, right? But now here, Jesus is saying there's, there are two realms here, and they have different areas of things that they can deal with. And in terms of practical implications, that means, yes, the, the, the civil government can have police and the soldiers to, to uh, stop crime. But on the other hand, it should stay out of telling you how to worship. That's things that are God's. And the church can teach doctrine and how to worship and proclaim the gospel, but it should not, but it should stay out of the things that are, or it does not try to control the things that are God's. There are two, two realms. Now we can go on to discuss what things belong in what realms, but at least there are two realms. Islam does not have that distinction. For Islam, everything is under the control of Allah, and there's no separate realm of Caesar. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And so you have religious law imposed on everybody. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. And Luke 9, 54 to 55, there was a case where Jesus was coming to a village of the, he was preaching and he was preaching and he came to a village of the Samaritans and they refused to receive him. And so they're walking away and the disciples, James and John, say, <clears throat> Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? See, you would get, at the next village, you get 100% attendance. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He wasn't going to use physical force, fire from heaven, to get people to come to his teaching. Okay? And John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. He didn't try to use the sword to escape from the Roman soldiers or the Jewish authorities and to advance his kingdom. His kingdom was not of this world. So he has different kind of weapons. So 
That means, I think, oh, here, First, Second Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons are prayer and the word of God and other things like that. Okay, so, so that means back here that the church should not use physical force to advance the kingdom. And that means that we shouldn't ever try to force people to support Scottsdale Bible Church or any other church through the power of the government. And it means, I think, that it's wrong for any national government to impose a tax and give it to just one denomination, as the Lutheran Church is the state church in Scandinavian countries, as the Church of England is the state church in England and supported by tax dollars, and as the Roman Catholic Church is the state church in a number of other countries. I think that's all trying to use the power of government to advance the kingdom, and I don't think it should be done. Another reason that government power should not be used to compel people to support Christianity, and that is you can't make people Christians by force. You can't compel people to believe in Christ. Genuine faith in Christ can't be forced. It must be voluntary. <clears throat> All the invitation verses in the Bible give evidence of that. People voluntarily have to choose to decide to believe in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires, who desires, there's voluntary choice, come and take the water of life without price. Therefore, the church should not use the power of the sword, the power of the government, to compel people to become Christians or to support the church. Now, it's interesting. It, just, it was surprising to me to find this out. It took a long time for the church to realize this. It wasn't, the church didn't realize under Constantine, hey, let's use the emperor, Roman Empire, to become the Holy Roman Empire and make everybody become Christian. I think that was wrong. I think it was a mistake. But somehow people didn't figure it out. The founding of the American colonies was to escape religious persecution, especially in England. People were forced to belong to the state church, the Church of England. And there were people who said, no, we want a church with believers only. And so they fled England, they went to the Netherlands, they fled the Netherlands, came back and got some friends and goods and things and, uh, to England, and they shipped off to the United States on the Mayflower and founded the American colonies. But now look when this is. The Reformation had begun in 1517. Luther didn't figure this out, that you, couldn't, that you could have freedom of religion in any community or state. Calvin didn't figure this out. Institutes published 1536. The Pilgrims came to Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1620. That's a long time after Constantine where the church kindly, kind of figured it out. I don't know why it took that long. It, just, it was there in the Bible, but people didn't see it. They were blind to it. And, um, and yet I think it's right. And so and that, that growth of the idea of freedom of religion ultimately led to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And we have freedom of religion. So I drive around the 101 going west, and I see off in the distance, just before the 101 turns south, I see a new mosque being built there for Muslims. And I have to say, I wish that was a new church. I wish more people were becoming Christians. But thank you, Lord, that I live in a country where Muslims have the freedom to build a mosque. And nobody persecutes them for it. And nobody outlaws it. And that freedom of religion protects all religions. And I want to defend that. Can Christianity, com can Christianity compete in the open marketplace of ideas? Yes, it's the truth. 
We don't have to outlaw other religions. The implication, no civil government should enforce laws requiring or prohibiting kinds of church doctrine or abridging people's freedom to worship as they choose or using tax dollars to support any one church. We must always support freedom of religion, but this is not common in non-Christian countries. A lot of countries, the church is persecuted. Muslim countries, but talk about Hindu areas of, of uh, India, there's a lot of persecution of the church as well. But Christianity, when it is rightly understood, guarantees freedom of religion. Okay? However, P.S., this does not prevent Christians from attempting to bring positive moral influence on government. We can speak our opinion and try to influence people. And this morning in the sermon, Daryl, and last week in the sermon, Jamie said, support this marriage amendment, that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's what we believe from the Bible. It's right for us to let our voice be known and influence a country where we have the right to do so in a democracy. You okay with that? It's just that we shouldn't enforce it. Okay? And the government of Arizona shouldn't tell us who the next pastor is going to be in this church. Well, I hope we don't get a next pastor for a long time, but when we are searching for a pastor. The civil government shouldn't get mixed up in the affairs of the church. And the church shouldn't say who the next governor is going to be. It can have an opinion, but it can't compel. You okay with all that? Time for a question or two, a comment? That's a very tiny treatment of a big subject. John. What do you think is happening when churches don't want to do what we did this morning? Talk about one of, yes, I'm one of Oh, what do you think is happening when churches don't want to do, talk about the marriage amendment? Um, well, there is a rightful hesitation on the part of pastors to say, I want to minister to people from who have different political convictions. So I want to be very cautious about saying anything that has to do with politics from the pulpit. And I think that's a good caution. But then you get some things that, there is no question from the Bible that homosexual conduct is thought to be, is, is taught as being contrary to God's will, immoral and that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and you get it throughout the Bible. And so there, it isn't, it isn't that anybody who believes the Bible could have different opinions. You can have different opinion on taxes or ANWR or something like that, or drilling off the continental shelf or capital gains. I mean, the Bible doesn't talk about that, but the Bible clearly talks about marriage. And so I, I understand the reluctance to get involved generally in political things, but then there occasionally come issues that are just so clear from the Bible that I think the church can have a good voice in, in helping society have guidance on this. Is that Are you all okay with this? Okay. Okay. Well, we're about at the end of our time. Ooh, I see one more back here. Yep. Uh, uh, Rosemary. Rosemary. It is Rosemary. Yeah. Uh, I always felt that the New Testament church was primarily born-again Christians. Yep. And today our churches to me, are much more evangelistic. Yep. So we're dealing more with these problems in yep. the church today. Am I right? You have a very important point there, Rosemary. And I, what's going to happen is, you see the next slide? We're going to take the whole next hour, because I didn't get to this, on church discipline. And what happens when there are a lot of visitors and non-believers, kind of what Charlie was, was asking about. And that makes it harder. But to be a member here, which Charlie is going to do, he's going to take the membership class pretty soon. <laughs> to be a member here, uh, you do have to make a genuine profession that you've trusted in Christ as Savior. 
So there it's a lot more clear. Okay? Well, look, this uh, we started singing this song last week, but this is, uh, you know, the, uh, on this rock I will build my church. What is the foundation of the church? Let's see if I can get over to this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's stand up and and sing. We're past time. I'm just going to dismiss you. See you next week. <laughs>